good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. It is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, wealth, and humanity. Living in harmony, too, is a real refuge, in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Love solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body their impermanence, unreliability, and insubstantiality. Such wisdom leads to lasting peace. This meditation center should be a quiet place where we strengthen faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, calm and liberate the mind. So this admonition of this encouraging counsel was offered by Mahasi Sayadaw, who was um, a Burmese monk in the last century, who, due to his both scholarship and his um, effective mindfulness and insight practice and, and effectiveness of his teaching, was invited to establish a meditation center for lay people in Rangoon back in 1947. And prior to that time, uh, if you'd wanted the kinds of teachings that we have available to us now, both the, uh, the meditative tradition of mindfulness and insight, most likely you would have had to be a monk or nun for life. But because of conditions, historical conditions in Burma, there was this movement to um, get the practice of mindfulness and insight into the lay people, not just to keep it kind of preserved for the monks and nuns. And so there was a strong movement in the uh, 20th century there to uh, actually have lay people practicing, householders, culminating in the establishment of this uh, meditation center. And it was uh, an effective way of practicing and it was wildly popular and well, hundreds of thousands of uh, Burmese men and women, as well as monks and nuns, went there to learn uh, meditation, mindfulness meditation and insight. The format of practice there was the understanding that lay people, householders like ourselves, leading busy lives, uh, don't have the time to uh, devote their life to study and practice. But if they can and would live their life uh, according to the, pre, to the uh, paramis, developing the ten wholesome qualities of mind, called the paramis, the perfections of, of mind, that this would provide the foundation for liberating insight. So the understanding was that lay people should uh, live their lives doing their civic, social, professional, domestic responsibilities for ten months a year. But for two months a year, they were invited to do an intensive retreat at the center. 
And over the course of years, if you kept doing that, where you really practiced the paramis, which are common, uh, not particularly esoteric or Buddhist practices, like generosity, loving-kindness, patience, truthfulness, wisdom, renunciation, determination, resolve. If you practice these in your everyday life, that it prepares the soil of the mind for deep and liberating insight. And year after year, if you do that, gradually your insight will become more powerful and liberating. Um, there was the understanding that it, it doesn't come easy, it's not a one-time thing, it's not a one-retreat deal, but it's if there was a commitment to uh, developing the heart of peace, then it was possible. So, the way that those teachings came to us here in the West was primarily through uh, Anagarika Manindra, who was a, an Indian man, Bengali, uh, who uh, was born Buddhist in India, although there's not many Buddhists in India now. And uh, at some point when the meditation center opened, he went to Burma from India in order to practice the meditation and to study. And he ended up staying there. I think he was there eight years. <clears throat> mostly not as a monk, but mostly just there to study and, and do the practice. He then returned to Bodh Gaya, India, and Rayan was the kind of the, the caretaker for the Burmese Vihara, where Joseph Goldstein uh, went to practice. And it's primarily through Menindra's teaching of Joseph, Sharon, Joseph and Sharon Salzburg that that tradition of practice came back to the West when they returned. So, through Menindra, through Joseph and Sharon, and then through Mahasi Sayadaw himself coming to the West, and also his successor, which is Sayadaw Upandita, and the, uh, the woman uh, Deepama from India, is how we get the teachings from the Mahasi tradition. Now, this retreat, uh, Alexis and I have been offering the teachings of uh, Sayadaw which is a little bit of a different technique, but is essentially grounded in the same understanding. And it's interesting to note that Sayadaw teacher, the Shweyu Min Sayadaw, was the first teacher at the Mahasi Meditation Center for the first ten years. So, cousin, cousin traditions, we could say. So Mahasi Sayadaw wrote this uh, admonition as encouraging counsel. And what I find about this that I just read is that it's encouraging, it's uplifting, it it's, uh, calls forth our aspiration, and it encourages us, it offers some guidance and it acknowledges in its own way the best that's within us to recognize the direction we want to go, the development we want in our life, and to pursue it with care and precision. So it's confidence boosting, it's clarifying, it's uplifting. And it's also advice, it's instructional, it's, uh, it's telling, you, telling us what to do. So I want to just offer some comments on some of what he's saying. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. These are the teachings of the Buddhas. Now, we live in the time of Gautama Buddha, who lived 25, 2600 years ago. But there is, a, there is a history, a written history of, I think, 29 Buddhas before Gautama Buddha. And they all taught the same thing. They all taught, do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify your mind. One thing that we should just acknowledges that we live in a time when the teachings of the Buddha are available to us. And we have um, teachers who have practiced what the Buddha taught and have realized what the Buddha taught and are able to share it from a practical uh, experience. There will come a time when the teachings of the Buddha 
are no longer available. They're not available on the face of the earth. We won't have these teachings. As much as mindfulness is a big deal now, uh, it's, it's not going to last. And at some point, the teachings of the Buddha, these teachings on mindfulness and the teachings on how to liberate the mind through insight, insight, the development of insight, are going to disappear. People aren't going to understand them. The books may be available, but people won't know how to read them and understand them and apply them in their life. So we live at a unique time, really. It's just a short period of time. It's only been 2,500 years so far. And so we should understand that, that you know, there have been plenty of time and plenty of people, and even on the face of the earth now, there's plenty of people that don't have access to the teachings of the Buddha. One of the amazing things that is happening as the teachings have come to the West, you know, there's a few Buddhist countries, Tibet, Vietnam, uh, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and there were a few others in Southeast Asia. A lot of them have, are no longer actively Buddhist, but one thing that's happening is there's a real renaissance or a real revival of the teachings of the Buddha due to the coming of the teachings to the West. And it's, you know, as you know, here I am recording this Dharma talk, which will be put up on Dharma Seed Tape Library. And Dharma Seed Tape Library has taken it upon themselves to uh, record and to distribute via the Internet all of the Western Dharma teachings that they can get their hands on. So all the teachings that have been offered over the last 40 years are freely available online. And the number of downloads per day is phenomenal. Hundreds of thousands of times. The Dharma is being accessed by people in parts of the world that don't have retreat centers and don't have teachers, but they have the internet. And so in some ways the teaching is really being... um, is having wider exposure, in part because Mahasi Sayadaw taught lay people, which made it possible for us to hear from Manindra, Joseph, and others, and for us to share with the world what we know. So, to do good deeds means really to be a benefactor to others rather than a burden. And the wholesome deeds or the good deeds to do are, are the obvious, you know, to, to be generous, to live an ethical life of non-harming, and to develop our mind. And to develop our mind in, in this situation from a, from a Buddha's view is not so much to learn the Dharma as it is to develop in tranquility and insight, which is what we're doing here. Other wholesome actions of the ten are to be reverential and to pay respect to those worthy of respect. To serve others in whatever capacity you can. To share the merit of your life, the goodness of your life with others, and to rejoice in others' goodness in their life. To teach the Dharma, Meaning, not only like I, in this situation, being a teacher, but whatever you share of your life, your understanding of the Dharma, or your practice of the Dharma, really how you live the Dharma, is sharing the Dharma. But also to listen to the Dharma, even listen to the Dharma. One of the ten wholesome deeds that kind of points your mind in the right direction. And the tenth, that I wanted to get to, is what I spoke about last night. And here it's called straighten your views. Get your mind straight about what direction you're going. What is the right way to understand the conditions in life? Because if we stay embedded or under the deeply conditioned influence of family and cultural education, we're going to have trouble freeing the mind from suffering in the way that the Buddha understand it could be done. To avoid causing harm is again, of course, the obvious, but there are ten unwholesome deeds to, to avoid. To avoid causing harm to yourself and to others. And again, of course, 
the obvious is killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, or sexual activity that causes harm to anyone, economic, financial, personal, emotional, psychological. And then there are four verbal actions which are unwholesome. Now, it's interesting that we spend so much of our time talking and listening and whatever we do. And so four of the ten unwholesome actions to avoid are about talking. It's interesting, when I first returned from my years as a monk and wanted to give a talk on right speech, I looked at the rules for monks. You know, there's 227 rules for monks. There were more rules about speaking than any other topic. Who to speak to, what to speak about, when to speak, how to speak. Because the harmony or the, the fabric of our community, whether it's this community, or a monastic community, or a household community, or our working environment community, the, the fabric of it is as fragile as the intention of a single word. Because so much damage can be done by carelessness. Not even intentional harm to others for speaking, but through carelessness in how we speak. So it's important to hear these three, these four unwholesome actions that are from speaking. Of course, lying you know, being deceptive, not telling the truth, being deceptive by commission and omission, slander, which is not always, um, which is not always loud and uh, narcissistic and critical. It can be very subtle, you know, slandering, saying something about someone to another that causes them to change their opinion of them. So when, you're, when you find yourself in a situation where you're speaking about someone who's not present, ask yourself if what I'm saying about them is going to cause a shift in the relationship of who I'm talking about with who I'm talking to. And so often we don't, we don't think that's uh, so significant, and yet it's dramatically impactful. If it causes a positive shift. What if it causes a positive shift? Be careful. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it either way. Yeah, it can shift either way. The other two are harsh speech, which is, uh, you know, we hear a lot of that on the political discourse, harsh, condemning, um, brutal, uh, put-downs, uh, taunting, uh, things like that are harsh speech. But the fourth kind of speech, which is harmful, is frivolous or meaningless speech. And the word, the Pali word for that is Sampapalapawada. And it's just what it sounds like. It's meaningless. It's meaningless and useless. And you might say, well, what's, what's, what's the harm in that? Well, it's misleading. It leads to delusion. It doesn't lead to clarity. It, it, is, uh, it can be arousing for no purpose. It can be depressing for no purpose. It's meaningless. It's gossip. And then there are three mental actions to avoid. Covetousness of others, others' belongings, which is just greediness or uh, uh, attachment, really. Then ill will, all forms of aversion. And wrong view. Again, here we are. One of the ten unwholesome deeds to be avoided is to hold wrong views. One of the ten wholesome is to straighten your views. So you can see that what I spoke about last night, the right views, the dharma, the right views of meditation, the right views of 
reality, if you will, is not not just an incidental uh, topic, but it's something that's vital to uh, our our well-being in the Dharma. So to do good deeds, to avoid uh, causing harm, and then to purify the mind. And as I said, to purify the mind means to bring forth into the mind, to develop the mind in, in ways that it is not yet developed. And this is essentially the second and third training of the Noble Eightfold Path, the development of collectiveness or uh, tranquility of mind, so that we're not so... Well, the way it's being used here in the West most often now is mindfulness-based stress reduction. Tranquility, using mindfulness to develop tranquility, minimizes stress and other unwholesome or unskillful, unhealthy uh, attitudes of mind. So that kind of tranquility <coughs> practice is a development of mind, as is the development of insight, which we're practicing here. So tranquility purifies the mind of these visitors to the mind that cause us so much torment. You know, when I was speaking to one of my groups today and saying, you know, the, the, the kind of whinging and whining and stress and anxiety and fear and, you know, the chatter of, the tormenting chatter of the mind can only thrive in the dark. Meaning, if you don't look at it, if you don't recognize it and don't look at it, it'll grow. But if with awareness you're able to see it, to recognize it, then it's not proliferating. It may, it may recur, it may persist, it may be pretty strongly conditioned habit, but at least you're looking at it. You're not letting it get away with itself. And so it's the development of uh, mindfulness that purifies the mind of the rampant torment of these obsessive states of mind. And it is insight, or vipassana practice, which purifies the understanding, the wrong understandings, that allows us to proliferate those unwholesome states of mind. So we should understand that, you know, when we practice precepts, we purify our speech and behavior, so we're not acting out in a way that causes others harm. When we practice mindfulness, we purify the mind momentarily of these obsessive churning states of mind that cause ourselves distress. And when we practice insight or vipassana, we purify our understanding. Not just purify the mind temporarily, but purify our understanding, our wrong views, really, that allow us to resort to anger, jealousy, fear, desire, whatever it is that causes us and others harm. Then Mahasasaira goes on to acknowledge it is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth, and humanity. Generosity is not particularly a Buddhist uh, quality or Buddhist attribute. It's uh, a quality of good, good people everywhere. Every culture, any culture, recognizes those who are generous as good human beings, or at least with good human qualities. And so we should understand that generosity is not about being you know, a philanthropist only. That's nice if you have means. But it's being generous with your time, your knowledge, service, loosening your identification or attachment to things, stuff, but primarily it's loosening your attachment to attachment itself. Learning how to loosen the glue of that holding on. And from it comes this compassionate action of being generous, where we can live 
with a sense of abundance. Now, even you know, in Burma, it is that, you know Burma, Burma is at the bottom of the list when it comes to UN uh, per capita income and other other uh, measures of economic well-being. Burma is down there, close to the bottom. And yet, it is said, it is speculated, it is said that the Burmese people are some of the most generous of, of any nation. You know, they rate number one or two in a lot of the categories of generosity. And it's estimated that as poor as they are, they still offer 25 to 30, 35 percent of their meager income to support monks, nuns, pagodas, temples, monasteries, nunneries. And for those of you who've traveled to Burma and spent time with the Burmese people, there's something about the quality of their sense of well-being or happiness. As utterly poor as they may be, there's still something that is pretty noticeable about their, their happiness in life. Years ago, before I went to Burma to ordain, I was living in the west of Massachusetts and... <clears throat> read an article in the newspaper about this potter who uh, lived nearby and he had uh, he practiced a certain Japanese style of pottery that was wood-fired and he would fire his kill four times a year, every season. And he had built a Japanese tea house, an authentic Japanese tea house on his property, which is an old New England farm that he converted into really a showcase for his pottery and Japanese gardens and the Japanese tea house. So I read about it and I thought, well, that, that'd be nice. I'd like to go see that, try some Japanese tea. And uh, so I went and spent an afternoon at this converted New England farm. And it was just beautiful. It was just, you know, it was just a mind-changing physical space. You go there, you hang out, it changes you. It's like meditating. You go to a good Japanese garden, it just changes your mind. Well, his, his whole place was like that. And I did the tea ceremony, and I looked at his pottery, and it was interesting, it was beautiful, it was expensive, and I didn't buy any. And, but I appreciated my time there, so I wanted to uh, acknowledge it to him, but he wasn't there. So when he returned sometime later from traveling, I went to see him, and because I'd gotten so much from spending my time there, I wanted to give him something, not being very well off at the time myself, but I did used to make bread every weekend. I took him a loaf of bread. So I took him a loaf of bread and I told him how much I enjoyed his, you know, his, uh, what he had to offer and that it was freely available and it was just, I spent a wonderful time there and so I offered him a loaf of bread. And he said, well, thank you very much and, you know, the next time I have to fire my kill, maybe you'd like to help me. So I said, okay. So when the time came to fire his kill, he called me up and said, I'm going to fire my kill. It takes about 36 hours to fire by wood. So he got it up and running and got the temperature up to a certain degree. And then at night, he needed to get some rest. So he asked me if I would come and keep throwing these sticks of wood into the, the fire pit to get the kill built up to the right temperature. So he taught me how to do it. And I spent the night there just throwing sticks into this little hole to get the temperature up. And after doing that for, I don't know, six or eight hours, he came back after a nap and finished off the job later in the day when I went home and got my sleep. And he said, when the, when the um, kill cools down, you can come back and we'll unload the kill. So a couple days later, when it cooled down, I went back and he and I unpacked the kill and laid out all the pieces of pottery that came out of it. And when they came out, he would look them over and any piece that was like exceptional, a 10 in his category classification, he would set it aside. The museum quality. And he had a whole room in his showroom that was just museum quality stuff, pieces. It was pretty dramatic. And then when the kill was empty, all the 10s were over here and all the other ones were over here. He said, take your pick, you can have any, any piece you like. I thought, oh, that's, that's nice. So I looked over all the pieces and being rather whatever I was I don't know maybe unsophisticated I don't know I just picked this little bowl that 
seemed to be good fit and it was kind of a not a dramatic, nothing fancy, which is functional to me. It was looked it looked and seemed and felt very functional. So I got the bowl and he was really happy to have me help and I was really happy to receive the bowl and I used that bowl for years. Every time I I mean I used it at home and when I went on retreat I took it with me to, to eat at the retreat. It would hold just enough, you know. I knew if I if I overloaded it it was gonna be a little too much and if I underloaded it it would be not quite enough. So I invested a lot of attachment into, <laughs> into this bowl. Years went by and eventually I decided to go to Burma myself and I packed the bowl along with all my other things into my truck, left it in storage and headed off to Burma. Five years later when I returned, I got my stuff and out of gratitude for my Western teachers who had introduced me to the Dharma, which I had so appreciated, uh, certainly during my stay in Burma, I wanted to offer my teachers something of value, something that out of my appreciation for them. So I looked through everything I owned and I saw this bowl. And I said, wow, this, this is almost the most valuable thing I own. So I took it and I offered it to one of my teachers who had just had a new house built and she was happy to receive it and I was totally joyful to offer it to her and she put it on the mantle of her new home, all over the fireplace. And I saw it there for a few years, just whenever I would go there. I saw it, and then I lost track of it. Some years later, I was invited to a, um, just an afternoon, spend an afternoon with a Dharma benefactor in uh, Boston. And I went there, and we had a small snack in the garden outside, and as the evening got cooler, we would moved inside to finish our conversation and so she suggested that we go sit in the living room. And she'd been uh, a yogi for many years and she'd, um, she'd practiced a lot of renunciation. She'd given away most of everything she had. But we went into the living room and in the living room there was a, a tall plant, about a two-inch little Buddha Rupa, Buddha statue on the mantelpiece and over in the corner was the uh, an easy uh, stuffed chair and then a stuffed two-person chair with a little coffee table in between. She said, we can go over there with our tea. So I went over there and I sat down and she sat down in the chair opposite me and I looked at that table. There's that bowl. And I said, oh, that's a really nice bowl you've got there. <laughs> <laughs> she says, yes. You know, she said, I was really happy. One of my teachers gave it to me. And I said, I know. She goes, hmm? And I said, do you want to know the history of that bowl? So I told her the history of the bowl. And we had a good connection over that. And now when I think about that bowl, she still has the bowl. When I think about that bowl, I think, now here's this, you know, probably a $40 bowl. And yet, it's been offered by the potter to me. He was happy offering it. I was happy to receive it. I was happy to use it. I was happy to offer it to my teacher, who was happy to receive it, and she used it. She was happy to offer it to her benefactor, who was happy to receive it, and she was using it. And I think, the happiness that that bowl has caused by being given away is far more than the value of that bowl. And in some ways, I feel like, even though I gave the bowl away, I no longer own it, I didn't give anything away. I got more than I gave away. That's how generosity works. That's how generosity is a source of our sense of well-being and a sense of living with a sense of abundance. So when we, when we practice generosity in that way, not just with bowls, but with anything, our time, our knowledge, uh, material goods, financial goods, what we get in return is more valuable. Living in harmony, too, Mahasasaya says, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Now, living in harmony is, of course, living according to the precepts that that we're doing here. The first training of the Noble Eightfold Path. To not harm, to really look, to watch carefully how we speak and how we act 
and to determine whether it causes harm, whether it causes economic harm, physical harm, social harm, uh, personal harm, emotional harm, any way of causing harm. Now, you know the precept, not to kill, not to steal, not to act out sexual energy in a way that causes harm. Not to use not to use intoxicants in a way that causes yourself or others harm. And right speech, you know, to cause harm by speaking. Most of us are not killers and stealers and you know, that that's not our um, that's not our habit. We're we're more careful than that. Most of the time. But you know, when we when we look carefully at how we use the Earth's resources, we might consider whether the way we use Earth's resources is taking something from the unborn generations that are going to want to live on the face of the Earth with as much abundance as we do. Do we have their permission? Are we taking from them by the way we live? I'm not indicting or condemning anything. I'm just inviting you to consider what the precept means not to take what's not offered. Because when I think, you know, frankly, when I think about grandchildren and the conditions, what I think are the conditions of the earth, I, it, it provokes some anxiety. It provokes some concern about the quality of life they will be able to live, in part because of the way we live. And it's something to expand our understanding of what it means. It means more that it means it encompasses that, uh, that dimension that might not have been so apparent at the time of the Buddha, but certainly is in our own life. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Do we practice any of those? <laughs> Let there be only a few things that you attend to. Most of us are so overcommitted and so overscheduled and so multitasking. This, this, this sounds like something only a monk or nun could do, which is mostly who he's writing for. But nevertheless, it's something that we should consider is what is the effect of... Because he then goes on to say these as well as another three, are the six factors that contribute to good dhammas. Good dhammas mean tranquility, kindness, generosity, sense of ease and well-being, peacefulness. These are the good dhammas. And the, good, the conditions that lead to good dhammas are that there be only a few things that you attend to. Now, when you look at your to-do list, who made that list? <laughs> there's, there's an antidote to that, you know. She's got a to-do list too. But you know, you might consider having a, to, a, a not to-do list that's equally long as your to-do list. But anyway, let there be only a few things to you do, that you attend to, a few things, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Now, we know how many hours we sleep. We've all tried uh, sleeping less, and we know that there are consequences of not getting enough sleep. When I went to the monastery where the practice was said over Bandita, of course, they have a schedule for monks, and the, the, the schedule includes, as, as Upandita said, you can sleep all you want between 11 and 3. <laughs> That's it, you know, and they were not kidding, they were serious. You can sleep all you want. But, I think that what I think that what Mahasasada is pointing to here is simplify your life. To the extent that you can simplify your life with how much you do, how much, how much you commit yourself to do, how much you sleep, how much, you, how much busyness. Because busyness and multitasking and distractedness is not going to lead to tranquility, a sense of ease, a sense of well-being, and peacefulness. 
It's not rocket science. It's, it's common sense. And if we want those qualities of being in our life and available, accessible to us, it takes wise decisions, it takes choice. It's making a choice, wise decisions, along these parameters of how much you do, how much you talk, and how much you sleep. He then goes on to say, love solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. Now, love solitude and seek good friends seem to be a little bit kind of one's going in that direction, one's going in the other direction. And can we have good friends? Can we seek good friends and still love solitude? And I think we can. Because solitude is really the ability to be alone and not lonely. To be at ease and comfortable within yourself. To, to recognize the need for the solitude as well as for the need for intimacy. And not just to get entangled in social obligations and intimacy and connectivity at the expense of solitude. Because, you know, most of us, you know, we've got plenty of social life and we've got plenty of intimate connections and we've got, we've got that. But so often we don't take the time to nurture a sense of well-being that comes from ease in solitude. Even on a retreat like this, as, as, as removed from our everyday distractions and entertainments, and even though, though we're among 40, 45 people, it's not always easy to be alone, to be quiet, to do your own thing, to follow your own schedule. You know, we look to others, we want, we want connection, we want to be engaged, we want to you know, and in part, you can see that it's, some of it is avoiding solitude, avoiding being alone, avoiding being with our own heart and mind, maybe being even, even being different. The second of those, love solitude, and the next one was be willing to learn, and the word that he used was be docile. Now, when I heard the word docile, all I could think of was be like a cow. <laughs> you know, standing at the fence, you know, being a little too domesticated. But that's not what docility means. Docility, being docile, means being able to be admonished and instructed. That means being willing to learn, being willing to be taught. Because, let's face it, where, how are we going to get the teachings of the Buddha, which are not always easy, they're not always logical, they're not always common sense, they're not our first choice often. Sometimes they're hard to hear. How are we going to get access in our heart to the teachings of the Buddha if we're not willing to be taught? If we're not willing to hear what's being said and take it in, really, not just up here, but I mean in your heart. So being willing to learn is not as easy as you might think. And then to seek good friends is what's the quality of your good friends? What is the what is it? What is it? about your good friends that most attracts you to them? <clears throat> their excitement? Their entertainability? Their dharma commitment? <laughs> their tranquility? Their peace of mind? Their generosity? What is it? You know, because what Mahasaya is pointing to is that when we, when we want to take on the dharma, and we, when we see the value of the dharma in our life, you know, it's not a common, it's not a common preference. You know, we're all here, but there's a lot of people that aren't here. And so, when you look around, your friends, do you have Dharma friends? Do you have friends who support your aspiration for clarity, integrity, uh, tranquility, uh, loving kindness, generosity? 
that understand your, 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 your commitment, understand your aspiration, or even support your aspiration to awaken. These are good friends, those who understand what really draws out the best within you. Those you could consider good friends because they, they call forth the best within you rather than otherwise. These are the six factors leading or contributing to good dhammas. And as I mentioned, these good dhammas are really this enduring sense of well-being, living from a sense of abundance, being able to serve others out of compassion, not out of uh, guilt or uh, obligation, and then to also be able to calm your own mind and to understand things deeply. These are the good dhammas that we seek. Mahasisayana then goes on to say, continuous mindful awareness, which is not easy in itself, but mindful awareness is hard. Continuous mindful awareness is hard. But nevertheless, that's what we're working towards. And even as the days go by here on our retreat, we'll see, gradually, we become more continuous. Not from striving, striving, pushing, making ourselves miserable, but just filling in the gaps um, you know, when we're not attentive, when we're not paying attention, when we're not remembering to acknowledge the present moment. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding. And it's insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body. How what's going on in the body affects what goes on in the mind. And how what goes on in the mind affects what goes on in the body. This is the causal relationship, the communication between the body and the mind that's going on all the time. To deeply understand that, to gain deep insight into that, requires continuous mindful awareness. <coughs> he then goes on to say that the understanding, the insightful understanding we have of this causal relationship is of the impermanence of the body and the mind. Anicca, and I'll speak more about this later in the retreat, the unreliability or the, the dukkha characteristic, how you can't rely on the body, you can't rely on the mind, it's so changeable, and it's not yours to control. The third characteristic, the insubstantiality or the impersonality, the evanescence, really, of the mind and body, and how... Yes, we have this body, yes, we have this mind, and it's temporary at best. Right? And we can't control it. We can train the mind some of the time, and it has its own mind the rest of the time. Such wisdom, he says, leads to lasting peace. Lasting peace. Peace is the characteristic of Nibbana. Peace is the characteristic. Not just tranquility, not just joy, not just harmony. Peace. And it is these insights, these insights, the insights into impermanence, into the dukkha characteristic, the anatta characteristic of the impersonal nature of uh, phenomena, that leads to this kind of wisdom. The wisdom that leads to peace. Peace is really the capacity to, in, to live with a sense of well-being in all conditions. A sense of well-being that is not dependent on conditions, whether you have or not. Happiness or a sense of well-being that's unshakable <coughs> in the face of uh, unpredictably changing conditions. And, and so that's, 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 a, that's a remote goal, or it's an aspiration, that we should consider what that means. What, what would it mean to be able to be so at ease and peace within yourself that conditions in your life could change dramatically? Financially, economically, health-wise, 
uh, externally change dramatically and still not shake your sense of internal well-being. Okay. There's room for improvement here. That's what we're practicing for. To, to gain this understanding, to really see deeply into this mind and body and their relationship so that we can understand the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, and not be fooled by momentary conditions that are going to change. This meditation center, here, Cloud Mountain, or anywhere else you practice, it can be your home. This meditation center should be a quiet place where we strengthen our faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, calm and liberate the mind. Basically, develop the mind. Practice the Dharma. It's interesting that he says, to, you know, basically to suggest finding a quiet place, practicing a quiet place, because it is there that you can practice. Strengthening your faith, practicing generosity, developing the mind, learning how to live in harmony with yourself and others. These are the tools, these are the, the foundation, the building blocks of a sense of well-being in our life. This is not esoteric. This is not esoteric encouragement. This is very practical, very grounded. It's not, it's not particularly Buddhist even. It's just common sense, really much of what he says is common sense. But we need the reminder that this is the path. This is the way to a sense of well-being, a sense of ease in life, a sense of um, purposefulness, meaning, connectivity. Sometimes I marvel at how much common sense Mahasi Sayadaw got into such a simple few lines. Because it touches on all of the essential pieces of our life, the, the, the behaviors of our life, the activities of our life that we know. We know. I mean, it's, did you hear anything really that you didn't know? Most of this we know, but we forget. We don't have encouragement. We don't have others encouraging us to, to remember to live in this way. And so I wanna, wanted to take this opportunity to remind us all of what we already know. It is possible to live at ease with ourselves, but it takes commitment. <clears throat> it takes decisions. It takes practice. This is why it's important that we gather together in retreats, where we gather together in our communities, in our homes, uh, with each other, where we acknowledge who our friends are, those who support our highest aspiration. Because, after all, it's our life. Nobody can do it for us. And we're never going to have any more time than now. Just take a moment, just let the words quiet down. <clears throat>